Old versus new. From Mary Quant's makeup to Prince Charles's garden. From skullduggery in the 70s to 21st century cutting edge technology. We look at history, science, and music in the August edition of the Worcester Talking Magazine. Hello, I'm Brian Edwards, and with me in the studio today are... Jenny Tansy, Philip Lee, and Sue Ward. We start with something new. Writing in The Spectator, Melissa Kite reveals a possible hidden agenda behind Google's email. Sue. After months of trying not to try the exciting new version of Gmail, the exciting new version of Gmail tried me. I hadn't realised it had happened until I opened my laptop and didn't recognise my own inbox. With the horror that creeps up in me like acid reflux to greet all technological advances, I realised that Forces Unknown had shut down my laptop in the night and upgraded me to the new Gmail while I was asleep. Dear God, no, I screamed as I tapped away furiously trying to change my email back to the format I could understand. But the option in settings for go back to classic Gmail had disappeared. No, please no, please, Christ no, I wailed, like Edward Woodward in The Wicker Man as the pagans are lighting the fire beneath him and the sacrificial chickens. Turns out you can only resist new versions for so long by clicking the opt-out button. They won't let you resist forever. I don't know who they is exactly, but it's not the weird kids in Silicon Valley getting their millennial kicks out of tormenting the over 45s with new versions of things, succeeding new versions of things, succeeding new versions of things. Faster than the speed of menopause, these new versions of things succeed themselves. Faster than the speed of deteriorating eyesight, faster even than the expansion of bunions. So who is they? They is the people the whiz kids work for. I have thought long and hard about this and the only motive I can think of for all this new stuff is to make our attention spans so short that we are sitting ducks for whatever is coming ultimately. The fact that your own computer can be shut down in the night remotely and that something you didn't want can be downloaded onto it by a faceless entity is proof enough of something really scary. If you don't believe me, consider this. The worst thing about the new Gmail is a series of boxes that pop up unbidden and which appear to be in no way controllable by you or me, the ironically entitled user. The main box is very big. And when it first pops up, it asks you if you want the other boxes to pop up. These boxes are not called boxes by them. They are called alerts. This word, alerts, is used throughout the internet and is designed to show that all this is essential. One is alerted to things one needs to be 
alerted too. However, if you have Facebook alerts switched on, and you will, unless you have mined deep into your settings to find the underground online caves where Facebook hides the option to turn its alerts off, then you will be getting alerts popping up on your screen telling you that a person you do not know, who you accepted as a friend because you didn't want to be rude, has just posted a comment about her wedding anniversary. This is of no consequence to you at all, but you are being told about it because you have alerts. On Gmail, I presume these alerts are designed to alert you to the fact that someone has sent you an email or replied to one you've sent them, quite as though it had not occurred to you to check your own inbox every now and then. So there is a legitimate need for your inbox to flash in front of you and interrupt what you're doing so you can react immediately to the earth-shattering occurrence of an email being sent to you, just in case death or destitution, presumably, results if you do not respond with lightning speed. That is the ostensible purpose of these alerts. But if we assume that to date there is no known incidence anywhere in the world in which disaster has resulted from a person not being instantly made aware of a posting on Facebook about a stranger's wedding anniversary or not receiving an email from Barclay Card about their money transfer rates for that month, let us consider what the actual purpose is. The purpose of these alerts is to shatter your attention span, to decimate your ability to think coherently, to be absorbed in a task, to have concentration, to be present. The new Gmail has been flashing the box about whether I want the boxes every 15 seconds for three days now. In order to resist, I have to click no every time. The only way to stop the box about whether I want the boxes is to say yes to the boxes. I may have to accept the boxes just to get rid of the box about the boxes. Once they have made me have the boxes, who knows what they can achieve. Celia Walden in The Telegraph magazine writes how technology and sauerkraut has truly future-proofed her health. Phil. I'm on an exercise bike in a West London basement, electrodes on my chest, being observed by a man in a white coat. Every so often he goads me. Come on, you're better than this. Adding to the sense that I've been propelled into some 12 monkeys-like future where only the fit can survive. Over the past month, I've had my DNA decoded, my brain, heart scanned, my nutrition, thyroid and adrenal stress levels evaluated and a blood glucose centre embedded in my upper arm. As the doctor shakes his head at the numbers on his screen now, I don't feel so much like a monkey as one of those perma-panting little Shetland ponies. Then again, that's the whole point of the RV, to turn me into a thoroughbred. 
When I was approached to try the Pioneering Health Management Service, which provides a 360-degree evaluation of body and mind before laying out a plan to have you functioning at your optimum for life, I'll admit I was scared, yet arrogant. I was both disinclined to be told how much damage I'd done to my body and convinced I was already doing all I could to thwart deterioration. Thank you very much. I eat the kale, drink the water, take the supplements, wear the sunscreen, do the exercise. But what if there is something intrinsically wrong with my DNA that I'm better off not knowing about? It's the first domino, says Viavi's founder, Dr Sabine Donai. And if you can keep that one standing by finding out where the weaknesses in your coding are, you're in a far more powerful position to fight against them and to protect your wider health. As a leading authority on preventative medicine, Donai believes the cut-and-paste health plans we draw up for ourselves, based on the advice of celebrities and bloggers, are laughably random and inefficient. There is no one-size-fits-all in health, adds Executive Director Oliver Patrick, who, as my assigned health manager, teaches me how to do my home tests, takes me to my scans and fills in my forms with me. Which means most of us are wasting time, energy and money on things that may not have any positive impact on our health. On results day there are some nasty surprises. Despite there being no osteoporosis in my family, my DNA shows that I'm at a high risk of developing it. Nevertheless, Don I, who is proactive, not alarmist, explains that exercise and vitamin D supplementation are the best things I can be doing while Patrick contacts my trainer to advise on the changes she should make to my workouts. Also, my gut's not working as it should, and I have a certain amount of inflammation, which can easily be brought down, it turns out, by cutting out coffee, which my body doesn't like, and eating sauerkraut. I leave armed with a tailor-made health blueprint that might just be one of the most precious things I own. With Viavi's packages starting from £10,000, it should be. But you only need to do it once in a lifetime. And what price can you put on knowing yourself inside out? Technology is everywhere, even the National Geographic. Jenny spotted a column sponsored by life science juggernaut Bayer in which they champion the work of their data scientists. Jenny. How can big data make a difference? We produce 2.5 quintillion bytes of data every day through the staggering array of digital connections that link people, objects, and devices. Every email, text, post, online search, app interaction, card transaction, and doctor's visit contribute to the three Vs that define big data. That's volume, velocity, and variety of information. In greater amounts than ever before. It's estimated that 90% of all data in existence was generated in the last two years. But to be useful, another V is needed, value. Extracting value takes powerful computers' complex algorithms, a combination that saw data scientists hailed as the world's sexiest job. But is big data really making a difference? Many believe it is. Retailers are using it to enhance our shopping experience from predicting popular products and engaging interest to ensuring availability and competitive pricing. In the United States, Macy's department store credits big data 
with improving their customer interactions and helping to boost sales by 10%. One area to benefit is customer service, where valuable information collected is supporting speedier decisions on loans and credit while providing better protection against theft, fraud and even overspending. Healthcare is also seeing a marked difference where data collection is helping to reduce preventable deaths, improve quality of life, predict epidemics and cure diseases. It's even used in cancer research. A cancer patient can generate terabytes of biomedical data and locked inside could be the key to a cure. Big data searches for patterns to predict how cancers will behave and recently led to the breakthrough discovery that a commonly used antidepressant has the potential to help find a cure for lung cancer. Big data is still just getting started, but it already impacts almost every area of our lives, mostly attempts to make them better. By 2020, there will be 200 billion, according to Intel, connected devices, and we're predicted to generate 1.5 megabytes of data per person per second. If computational power and data scientists can keep pace with such growth, the potential for big data to make an even bigger difference is huge. It's hard, maybe futile, to resist change. Despite much social, religious and political upheaval, one constant from medieval times to the early 19th century were the weights. These groups of musicians paraded through the town at night, waking the townsfolk on dark winter mornings by playing under their windows, whether they liked it or not, welcoming royal visitors by playing at the town gates and leading the mayor's procession on civic occasions. The York Waits date back to the 13th century, but in their 21st century form visited Worcester's Huntingdon Hall recently. John Plush went to find out more. I have before me on the stage in Huntington Hall Tim Bailey, Susan Marshall, William Marshall, Isabel Dowell, Anna Marshall and Deborah Catterall, collectively known as the York Waits. Tim, tell me about the origin of the York Waits. The Waits go back a long, long time, probably to the 1300s or so, and every city and town of any substance employed musicians, really copying what the royal courts did with their musicians, and they were employed to sort of lend grandeur to the, to the town. The wealthier the town, the more weights they could afford to pay. Um, certainly in the 1400s, we think there were two and then three, and as York gained in wealth, they increased the number of musicians they employed up until the late 1500s when there were five and even at 1.6 musicians generally playing these loud outdoor instruments because a lot of their job was to play in the streets, to play at banquets, processions, um, and they needed to make a big noise. And why weights? What does that mean? 
Weights was, we think now, is to do with the weight pipe, which was thought to be a reed pipe that was uh, played. The, the Spanish still have a word, gaita, which is the same stem of word, meaning a, a, a bagpipe in that case. But uh, the shawm was an Arabic instrument that came back and it was known as the weights pipe. Um, and it was a, a double reeded instrument, such as I'm holding here, um, made of wood, no keys. It's about a meter long, a fairly sh strident, shrill sound designed to be effective outdoors. And how does that sound? How many of those do you have? So we're going to play two of those and playing in this first piece for you we've got two natural trumpets. These are S-shaped trumpets. Um, the original straight trumpet was a very unwieldy thing and in the late 1300s they developed the art of bending brass tube <coughs> by filling it with lead and then bending it into an S shape and then melting the lead out. So that preserved the internal dimensions of the tube. So it became a lot more portable, a lot more functional and really survived in this form until eventually val valves were invented for trumpets in the 1800s. This is the, the, the sort of trumpet that I, I think they use for fanfares a lot, very long trumpet. That's isn't it? right. I mean, the, 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 the trumpet in, in medieval Renaissance times was a fanfare instrument. They, the trumpeters had a different guild. They were, they were sort of a cut above the, the, average, the average musicians because they had such an important job. You, you know, you needed the trumpets to herald the arrival of important people, to get people's attention for announcements and all the rest of it. Um, so again, the wealthier the wor you were, the more trumpeters you employed. Deborah, you're in charge of what is probably man's oldest instrument, I think, here, the human voice. And you're accompanied by Susan. What is that Susan is playing? It looks a bit like a violin. It has but three strings. What do you call that? It's a tenor rebec. It has three strings tuned like the bottom strings of a viola. It's got a back like a lute. A rounded back like a yes, lute. And yeah. it's carved out of one piece of wood and played with a little twig bow. Um, what were you going to sing? Well, it's called The High Desire. It's, it's written by that famous composer, Anonymous. Um, and it's, it's what you might call very early art music, so probably not sung on the streets or played on the streets, but more courtly and more intimate.
I see you've brought an organ with you. It's a like a miniature church organ. It's a small keyboard, about what, two and a half octaves. 30 pipes. Um, they're tin pipes. Um, it weighs 12 kilos, uh, so it's quite a heavy thing. It's about as big as portative organs got, portative meaning portable. These were around in, from early medieval times up until about um, 1500. So it's pumped with the bellows, actually the left hand of the player is around the back of the instrument holding a bellows, and pressing down on a bellows, and the right hand therefore plays the keyboard. Um, the disadvantage of this obviously was you're restricted to what you can do with one hand. So it sits very neatly on my knee and it's very highly decorated to look like part of a Gothic cathedral. At the top of each uh, metal pipe there are some vellum envelopes which can slide up and down and fine-tune the notes. So like little extensions yes. to the pipe? Yes. Um, the other little feature which you'll hear in the piece that we're going to play is that it has some, uh, a way of fixing a drone, so I've got some little sliders that lock down, they can be moved along above the keyboard, and sit down above a certain key, and then I can switch them on and play above that. And switch the drones off. Fills out the sound. Will you for put down your trumpet and you're now on? Well, it's called a gittern, which is really kind of medieval guitar. It's a very popular instrument that uh, Chaucer refers to quite a lot. And it's used in various uh, settings and uh, as a popular chordal instrument. It's got four, this one's got four courses based on a 15th century example. So we're going to play a tune from the late 15th century and it's called The Dance of Declared, The Dance of Cleves. <laughs> Isabel, I see you're on bagpipes now. Um, they're similar to traditional bagpipes we all know. Um, they're not quite the same. How, how are they different? These are English bagpipes. If you um, buy them nowadays, they're often called shepherd pipes. And it's a very simple bagpipe uh, compared to the Scottish ones. So it's a single drone and a leather bag. And, and they came, again, in different sizes. So this is a G-pipe, and this is the highest bagpipe. We have a D-pipe. 
and there's also a great C pipe as well, the big one. I love the sound of the lower ones, actually, but uh, with these instruments, it really depends on the size of your fingers, so this is the one I can reach the holes on. <laughs> now, Anna, you've picked up what looks like a trombone, but is that actually a sack butt I yes. see before me? Yes. Wow. <laughs> That's lovely. It hasn't changed an awful lot, it's it, just it, smaller than the modern it, trombone. It looks like a, like a modern trombone, except it hasn't got the flared bells. Not it's a lot smaller, the bell, yeah. a lot yeah. narrower, yeah. Susan is on a different um, stringed instrument. This one's got five strings. Yes, it's a medieval fiddle. <laughs> <laughs> and Tim, you're, you're going to play a hurdy-gurdy. It's really a mechanised violin. Um, instead of the bow that the fiddle has, the strings actually on the hurdy-gurdy sit on a, on a wooden disc in the middle of the instrument. So when that disc is rotated with the use of a handle which sticks out on the right-hand side of the instrument, the strings all start to vibrate. Some of the strings are drone strings, so it sounds like a string bagpipe. The central strings uh, run through a peg box, so it's like a mechanical version of putting your finger down on a violin fretboard or a guitar fretboard. Mm -hmm. And I'll give you the sound of the open strings vibrating. And I'm using the left hand to press the keyboard. You'll also hear a, a rhythmic buzzing noise, which is caused by a beating with the right hand. Rather than just winding the handle, I'm actually beating a, a beat. So it has a percussive element, which makes it ideal for dancing. Amazing. <laughs> so we'll start, with, we'll start with the hurdy-gurdy and the fiddle, and then we'll do a second verse of the tune with the whole band joining in. Well, Tim, Susan, Anna, Isabel, William, Deborah, the York Waits... Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you. <laughs> learning there
about instruments he's only ever seen before in museums. Worcester Museum has a poster for a Victorian rock band. It features in an exhibition to mark the retirement of curator Garston Phillips, along with a cartoon of Mr Phillips in a pair of 1970s flared trousers. According to Mike Price of the Worcester News, he writes, I have a pair of similar period strides. Nostalgia from an age long gone, but they look nowhere near as good as his, which somehow sums up the man's skills. Because curator Garston not only had an eye for the unusual, but knew how to present it too. In recognition that his familiar face will no longer be seen around the museum in Fourgate Street, it has mounted an exhibition which could rightly be called 50 Years of Garston Phillips. Instead, its official moniker is 50 Objects, 50 Stories. It comprises 50 exhibits, each one chosen by the man himself, and each with its own special association for him. They range from a poster for a Victorian rock band concert to the entire contents of a chemist's shop, which operated in Worcester High Street from 1776 until 1974 and was removed piece by piece to the museum over two years. All are accompanied by a descriptive little story from Garston. He retired with the rather impressive title of Collections Ambassador and Keeper of Natural Sciences, something that would have been beyond his wildest dreams when he visited the museum for a once-a-year treat as a boy. He said, When I started in August 1969, my first duties were not actually in the building itself, but at the city show on Pitchcroft where every year we took items from the museum collection to display in a large tent. And that hasn't happened for at least 40 years. From then until now, Garston has amassed a fund of remarkable and amusing stories. I particularly like the one attached to a lovely old Victorian rocking horse, which the museum acquired from St Clement's School in St John's. It was in a rather sad state, and eventually received many hours of painstaking restoration. At the time, the museum had no vehicle to transport items, so the wooden horse had to be carried manually through the streets. As it passed the old Greyhound pub, a voice was heard to cry out, That's the one I backed in the 3.30 yesterday. Of all the museum's exhibits, of which only a fraction are on display at any one time, with the rest in storerooms below, Garston's favourite is a golden eagle. It is my earliest museum memory, he explained. It always used to fascinate me as a child when it stood in a bird habitat case, even more than the albatross which was above it. The bird collection galleries were my favourite rooms. Incidentally, the albatross has a nickname as well as an eight-foot wingspan. Albert was presented to the museum back in 1902 by an engineer on a ship from New Zealand which was transporting refrigerated meat. Once in Worcester, the bird was prepared and mounted and put in a showcase for the grand sum of £16. 
Albert, who is one of the museum's most popular exhibits, has recently undergone a complete renovation to ensure he's good for another hundred years or so. Finally, that ancient rock band concert poster. And no, it's not for a Rolling Stones gig. It dates from 1850 and refers to Richardson's monster rock band from Keswick in the Lake District, which played instruments carved out of solid rock. But did they own a pair of flares like Garston Phillips? Not on your nelly. So rock on, Garston. Enjoy retirement. You've earned it. Sue. This is another of Mike Price's articles for the Worcester News in their Crime Files series of Worcestershire's infamous cases. The last name of Liz Page Alucard was Dracula, spelled backwards, and almost prophetically there was a lot of blood around when the popular drugs counsellor was bludgeoned to death at the Turning Point Advice Centre in Worcester in the autumn of 1989. No one knew why the three times married former Met Police officer, a recovered drug addict herself, introduced the made-up appendage to her mother's maiden name by Depole, but it added an extra twist to a murder which initially seemed to swirl around involvement in the drugs world and the occult, but turned out to be the work of a killer trying to cover up another crime. And that killer was Lizzie's boss, David Bingham. The pair met when she went to work part-time at the drop-in centre in Love's Grove as an extension of the work she had been doing from her home in Suffield Close, Bransford. There, in 1986, Liz founded a group called SHIELD, which stood for Self-Help in Ending a Life of Dependency and rapidly became a cornerstone of the fight against drugs in Worcestershire. Someone drug addicts would trust in a world where they didn't trust many people. Universally liked by those she met, the 41-year-old was nevertheless a complicated character. Born in Llandrydod Wells, she gained A-levels in music and French and went to Hereford Teacher Training College, but stayed only a term before leaving and starting at Secretarial College. She then, at the age of 19, decided to join the Met Police. However, that only lasted six months before she was found unsuitable for the job. In the late 1970s, during the end of her first marriage and start of her second, Liz descended into a 15-year addiction to morphine and amphetamines. However, she successfully fought her demons and recovered, appearing twice on an Esther Ransom BBC television programme about drugs usage in 1986 to talk about her own success in beating the habit. She told viewers, When you can wake up in the morning, look in the mirror and feel happy with yourself, you know you've won. Working with centre manager David Bingham at Turning Point seemed an ideal fit, a friend who knew them both said, 
They were amazingly alike in what they wanted to achieve to help drug users and were both totally committed to their work. In fact, Bingham and his wife and Liz and her common-law husband, Peter Hook, often went out together socially. So when Liz's battered body was discovered at the locked Turning Point Centre on the morning of Saturday, October the 7th, 1989, Bingham was the last suspect on many people's minds. Most assumed she had been murdered by a drug-addled client or in a burglary gone wrong. But despite laying an intricate trail of deception, Bingham failed to fool the police. The savage killing, during which Liz was battered more than a dozen times around the head and throat with a metal jug, occurred after she refused to accept responsibility for nearly £7,000 disappearing from the centre's funds, money which Bingham had taken himself. To try to confuse detectives, Bingham moved Liz's distinctive black minivan from the centre, locked the gate and parked it somewhere else in the city, leaving her body alone in the locked and shuttered building. It was 36 hours before she was found, during which time police twice called at the centre, but, as it was locked and in darkness, assumed it was empty. Somewhat bizarrely, at his trial at Birmingham Crown Court in February 1991, 32-year-old Bingham, who lived in Stourbridge, freely admitted battering Liz to death, but claimed he only did it after severe provocation. He claimed they were arguing about the missing money, and he snapped when she began taunting him about the cot death of his five-month-old son. But by then, police had laid bare his attempts at a cover-up. They found out how he got rid of his bloodstained clothes, dumped Liz's car, left an old coat under the body hoping one of the centre's 200 clients would be blamed and then took part in the search for the body only to discover it himself when accompanied by Peter Hook. It took the jury just two and a half hours to reach a guilty verdict and David Bingham was jailed for life. Afterwards, a senior detective said, Bingham was very clever. He should have been a crime writer the way he tried to cover up this murder. I'd like to know how the police worked out that Bingham was the culprit. Maybe it was a case for a modern Sherlock Holmes. Conan Doyle's hero detective has attracted many writers to further the myth including Worcester's own Angela Lanyon. Mark Devlin reads The Case of the Wembury Terror. An urgent telegram from my friend Sherlock Holmes had sent me hastening to Baker Street, and now the two of us had left Paddington behind and were travelling to the West Country. It may prove to be a fascinating case, Watson, Holmes remarked as the train drew into Plymouth. 
And there, if I'm not much mistaken, is our host. He pointed to a well-set-up gentleman who was anxiously inspecting the train through the clouds of hissing steam and the bustle of arrivals. Among the throng, it would have been impossible to mistake Sir Charles Betterton, a fine, upstanding Devonshire gentleman. His face bore marks of healthy outdoor exercise and prolonged exposure to the elements, although now its normal cheerfulness showed a mixture of relief and concern as he greeted us with a hearty handshake. Safely ensconced in his carriage and out of the rain, he told his story. I live at Wembury, a small village along the coast, once the haunt of smugglers, but now home to respectable fishing folk. He went on to explain that on two occasions recently, bodies had been found in nearby woods, their throats torn out and their faces horribly savaged. The first was a girl of about seven, and the second a middle-aged man. If they had been in the sea, he continued, the disfigurement would have been put down to the effects of fish. Were there any other injuries? Holmes inquired. Sir Charles's voice sank to a whisper. Their extremities had been gnawed, as if some animal had sated itself. It's, it's not badgers or foxes, and there are no other predators in the area. I even inquired if some circus animals had escaped, but there was nothing of that sort. Now, alas, the villagers have got it into their heads that my wife is responsible. Your wife? I exclaimed. What an extraordinary idea. What reason have they? Well, she's a foreigner, which is enough in these parts. A solitary person, gathers herbs, and often accompanied on walks by her pet cat. A little enough reason you and I would think, but they are superstitious and backward hereabouts. And now the shops refuse to deliver, and the maids have given notice. I, I tell her that some new sensation instead will soon cause their tongues to wag, but she... He hesitated, and a shadow crossed his face. It is as if she harboured some dark secret, and has become afraid even of her own shadow. When she thinks herself unobserved, I catch her glancing behind, as if her footsteps were dogged by some unseen menace. Do the villagers imagine her to be some kind of vampire or a werewolf, I broke in, wondering what angle of the case had intrigued Holmes, who dismissed all superstition as evidence of feeble-mindedness. But before he could answer, Wembury Grange came into view, a sturdy stone-built house surrounded by trees, and now that the rain had stopped, a fine view down the valley towards the sea. In the light of that spring day, there seemed little sinister about it. In the drawing-room, Lady Betterton, younger than I had expected, statuesque and with abundant fair hair, rose to greet us. I noticed Holmes give her his usual analytical glance, seemingly casual but missing nothing. I, meanwhile, 
was inspecting the room, enchanted by its rich furnishings and the shelves of blue and white porcelain and the Siamese cat stretched out before the fire. You have no cause to be nervous, Holmes said as she passed him his teacup. The tinkling of the spoon in the saucer had revealed her agitation. I have every reason, Mr. Holmes, she replied. I would not mind the name-calling, but the insults to my husband is unbearable. It is he who saved my life, and I owe him everything. My dear, Sir Charles laid a calming hand on her shoulder. It can have no bearing on the matter, but I should have warned you, Mr. Holmes, that my wife is the survivor of a shipwreck. It still pains her to speak of it. Despite the approach of evening, Holmes insisted that we visit the place where the bodies had been found. It is a great pity that you didn't summon me sooner, so that I could examine them myself rather than rely on the opinions of a local doctor, he said. Nevertheless, there should be some clues remaining. We followed the lead of our host down a gravelled path and away from the house and its surrounding gardens until it disappeared among the trees. It is a private path to the beach, explained Sir Charles, although the villagers use it as a shortcut. And you have no objections? None at all. Saves a good mile by the road. There, he pointed ahead to a tumbled-down group of buildings, both bodies were found close by. Holmes held them back. Stay here, he ordered, and pray do not disturb any clues that may remain. His keen eyes scarred the ground about the path. Suddenly he darted off to the left with a cry of triumph, and a moment later rejoined us holding a brass button. It has come from a sleeve, Watson. When the attack came, the victim flung up his arm to protect his face. Whoever attacked him approached him from in front. Is it possible that he recognised his assailant? But if it was not robbery? asked Sir Charles. Oh, I never thought it was, answered Holmes. On each occasion you've told me nothing had been taken, therefore I ruled out theft from the outset. One dead body might have suggested village rivalry, but two, and the first only a child. Once more he scanned the ground. Oh, if only I had been summoned sooner. Now there's little to see except the prints of large boots. He held out the button for our inspection, and I observed how his eyes glittered with the thrill of the chase. All the same, he said, I fancy this will enlighten us when we examine it closely. After we had dined, Holmes produced the button. I doubt if it'll reveal much about the victim, he muttered, apart from the fact that he was tall, right-handed, and engaged in some sort of clerical work. You see how the moulding on the button has been worn as if he were in the habit of resting his arm on the desk. This comes from his left sleeve, Watson. When he was attacked, he flung up his arm to protect his face, and he led with his right hand. He turned the button over. It was torn from the sleeve with great violence. The threads are frayed. And see here, these tiny scratch marks. These were made at the moment that he was set on. 
Are there reports of seagulls or owls attacking people? He asked Sir Charles. I have heard of occasional instances. Our host shook his head. What you say lends credit to the rumours that it is my wife's cat which was responsible. Holmes shook his head. A cat might turn vicious, but it would be unlikely to have the strength to kill someone, nor would it produce the marks that you informed me were found on the body. Your wife, Sir Charles, you said you saved her life. Will you tell me what happened? And we'll find out what happened later in this programme, along with... The history of St Martin in the Fields. Mary Quant's right-hand woman reminiscing about the swinging 60s. And the circular tale of Worcester's Wrongswood Hospital. But first, Phil, courtesy of Alex Preston, writing in the Telegraph magazine, takes us into the garden at Highgrove, favourite haunt of Prince Charles. The obsessions of our adult lives are shaped in childhood, and His Royal Highness the Prince of Wales spent his early days being led through a parade of glorious gardens, from Sandringham to Balmoral, from the historic private park attached to Buckingham Palace, to the ornamental splendour of the late Queen Elizabeth the Queen Mother's Garden in Windsor Great Park. It's no surprise that gardening has been the central passion of Prince Charles's life, a passion that finds its ultimate expression in the garden that he has established in the Gloucestershire countryside. The first thing you notice as you step into the grounds of Highgrove near Tetbury is the bird's song, a complex wash of wrens, thrushes and warblers. Then the colour. It's early May, every gardener's golden hour, and the place it is its most beautiful. The gardens of country houses can feel formulaic, designed by committee, and yet Highgrove is something else, a place that is both a work of exquisite, often eccentric, art and an advertisement for a way of thinking about our own relationship to the land we walk upon and cultivate. It's also a garden that feels deeply personal, with every border, vegetable patch, topiarised hedge and ornamental flourish bearing the mark of its creator. I'm shown round the 15 acres of Highgrove by head gardener Debs Goodenough, one of a team of ten, a likeable, self-effacing Canadian who, after an early life of high adventure, she was a coast guard and then a fire watcher in the Rockies, turned to gardening. She was charged with restoring the gardens at Osborne House, Queen Victoria's palatial holiday home on the Isle of Wight, and did so while adhering to strict organic principles. She's been at Highgrove since 2008 and is quiet, intensely knowledgeable and clearly devoted to her royal employer and his vision of this very special corner of Gloucestershire. Highgrove has a number of significant birthdays coming up. It is currently celebrating a quarter century of the gardens being open to the public and next year will mark the 40th anniversary of the Prince's purchase of this Georgian manor house of Cotswold Stone. From April to October, around 40,000 visitors come on pre-booked small group tours of the garden, with all the profits from these visits, 600,000 at the last count, going to the Prince's various charitable endeavours. There's something more than a merely philanthropic impulse at work here, though. He's always wanted to share it, good enough tells me. People come here again and again. They collect the seasons. The Prince is very much a hands-on gardener, laying out new plants where he wants them, giving good enough extensive notes on his plans for the garden and then helping to put them into practice. 
She says, whenever he's been away, I can count the moments until he's out here in his gardening clothes, looking to see what we've been up to. Highgrove provides a unique insight into the prince and his life. The garden is dotted with gifts from family and friends, with numerous personal touches, from two Grecian urns given to the prince by the Duchess of Cornwall for his 70th birthday, to the bronze relief of the late Queen Elizabeth in her favourite gardening hat, and the thatched treehouse built for Prince William's seventh birthday in 1989. Where many stately homes can feel like stiff and grandiose expressions of power, pompously overlooking their terraced lawns, Highgrove is still very much what it always was, a family home, a place of secluded nooks and corners, of high topiarised hedges, a garden that reveals itself gradually, episodically, with each room recounting a different story of its creator's life. I spoke to the prince on the telephone after my tour and he told me that when he purchased Highgrove from Maurice Macmillan, the son of the former Prime Minister Harold, the garden was almost non-existent, a blank canvas. The house had nothing round it at all, he said. There were no hedges, large open areas came right up to the house with just a brown path that went round it. So we had to create rooms. The prince's love of gardening was particularly encouraged by the late Queen Elizabeth, the Queen Mother. I adored being a child in my grandmother's garden at Royal Lodge in Windsor Great Park, he told me. My grandfather, King George VI, made a lot of it himself. He hacked out clearings and planted lots of rhododendrons and azaleas. I've always had a passion for them. There was an azalea walk with the common yellow azalea, which smells magical. As a child, it had a profound influence on me, as did other parts of the garden. There was an old yew maze at Sandringham, and my sister and I adored running round and playing in it. I've had such fun planting two mazes at Dumfries House, the 18th century house I rescued in southwest Scotland, and it's been immensely rewarding to see children enjoying them exactly as I did. The Prince and Princess Anne were also allowed to have their own patches of garden at Buckingham Palace. We had a tiny bit at the back of the garden where we could grow a few vegetables and tomatoes. That experience is very valuable, and I hope my grandchildren can have the same. Prince Charles was 18 in 1966, when not only did England win the World Cup, but also his mother awarded the OBE to a young fashion designer, Mary Quant. Quant's right-hand man, you could say that in those days, was Joy Debenham Burton, who wrote in the Telegraph magazine of her time in Birmingham with Mary Quant, Jenny. When I was 21, I worked at Rackham's department store in Birmingham, which is now part of House of Fraser. I was utterly in my element, having been poached from my job as a perfumery store buyer to run all the promotion for Mary Quant's brand new revolutionary range of cosmetics. In my head, I still feel like that bright-eyed, 22-year-old, King's Road and Carnaby Street girl, though in reality I am 75 now, and those heady days of the swinging 60s are long gone. People refer to that era constantly, but I can tell you it was quite something to have been part of it, especially in the world of fashion and cosmetics. Mary Quant arrived on the makeup scene just as women's clothes were finally getting an update, and girls in their teens and 20s was starting to look really rather different. Not long before then, young women had dressed like their mothers. The clothes had begun to change, but there was still no makeup to suit the modern 1960s look. 
eyeshadow still came in blue or green. Foundation was just something like Max Factor's pancake, which covered everything up. Young girls have lovely skin, so why would you want to cover it? Mary could see there was a need for a new way with makeup. She introduced revolutionary products. There was a face shaper with a dark taupey brown for underneath the cheekbones, a highlighter to go on the cheekbones. There were blushes, lipsticks in prune colours and eyeshadows in shades such as grapevine and slate. In those days, there was nothing like it. Even the packaging felt revolutionary. Packaging in cosmetics was very pink and pretty and usually trying to emulate expensive materials, even though it was made from plastic. Mary's products were white and geometric with that ever-present silver daisy. It felt youthful and modern and young women fell in love with it. We knew it was taking off pretty quickly. We had to hire more girls after just a couple of months. And after launching in all the major cities in the UK, we took the line to the rest of Europe and then America later that year. And I got to go with it. Suddenly I was finding myself in Milan and New York and New Orleans. It was just so exciting. I felt as though it was right on the cusp of the brave new world. Mary was wonderful to work with, though she was actually rather introverted and low-key. She shunned the limelight, so whenever someone was required to make a speech at a launch, I tended to do it, while Mary stood at the back. Soon, my picture was appearing in the newspapers, and I was being interviewed at our launch events. Shopping was such a different experience in those days. Department stores were glamorous, with nice chairs and hands-on staff, it wasn't all about convenience as it is now. It was aspirational. It was about comfort and making an experience out of buying a new lipstick. Shopping isn't exciting anymore, which I find rather sad. We've lost the ceremony around it. But even if the rest of the world would prefer to shop online, I'd still rather go into a store to look at clothes or makeup. Just not if that means going to Westfield. The swinging 60s also saw an innovation, but of a very different kind, at the old Ronxwood Hospital in Worcester, as Mike Price writes in the Worcester News. Sue. Considering it was only supposed to last 10 years, having been built to cater for wounded from the Second World War, Ronxwood Hospital in Newtown Road, Worcester, didn't do badly. It eventually closed in 2002 with the arrival of Worcestershire Royal Hospital about half a mile away on the opposite side of the road and the old site is now covered by housing. But there were plenty of twists and turns along the way. One of the first came not long after the end of hostilities when the population seemed to have been celebrating so much the birth rate shot up. By the end of 1948, Birmingham Regional Hospital Board was being asked to spend nearly £39,000 on providing a new maternity unit at the hospital, comprising a clinic and four wards. Pleading for the cash, Mr J.S. Ripper, Secretary of South Worcestershire Hospital Management Committee, said... The need for such a facility was urgently apparent. 
It was intended the spend would create a training school with 60 trainees and teaching staff. Wrongswood Hospital was built on part of the original Toledyne Golf Course in 1941 under the Emergency Medical Services Act as a temporary hutted hospital, later to be used by the Ministry of Pensions as a pensions hospital. It had a complement of 600 beds in 14 wards, some wards having as many as 40 beds. It had its own staff, including medical, surgery and nursing, and during the war treated service casualties, civilian casualties from the Birmingham air raids and other cases. Despite its intended use largely disappearing after the war, it still retained a full medical, surgical and nursing staff, although bed numbers were reduced by... Um, sorry although bed numbers were reduced to 450 by 1951. It then became a National Health Service facility with the aim of reducing the long list of patients waiting for treatment in Birmingham. However, this proposal was impractical due to the distances patients and their families needed to travel to Worcester. So in 1952... It was transferred to the South Worcestershire Group and became part of Worcester Royal Infirmary and extended greatly. The new maternity department eventually opened in September 1952. It had 49 beds, an antenatal clinic and classroom. It catered for both normal and abnormal midwifery and later for general practitioner midwifery in a separate unit. No further midwifery was done at Worcester Royal Infirmary in Castle Street. One of Ronswood's most innovative moments came in the summer of 1968 when its two operating theatres were being refurbished and surgeons took to carrying out their work in a giant sealed and sterilised tent. It was called an octotent, one of only four in the country and was basically a reinforced plastic canopy erected over a tubular steel structure in which air could be constantly changed. It comprised a theatre and outer recovery room joined by a sliding concertina-type door. The octatent had originally been designed for use by the military, so in some ways the hospital went back to its roots. Time for a little light relief now. John Plush has this for us. I've just got here through Paris from the sunny southern shore. I demand the call of wind just to raise me with the rent. They fortune smiled upon me as she never smiled before. And I've now got lots of money, I'm a jet. Yes, I've now got lots of rhino, I'm a jet. As I walk along the quad along with an independent air, you can hear the girls declare, he must be a millionaire. You can hear them sigh and wish that I could see them wink with the other eye at the man who broke the bank at Monte Carlo. As I walk along In this popular musical song, made famous by Charles Coborn, the bank in question is not a high street bank. It refers instead to the float of money held by the croupier of each gaming table at a casino. 
Back in the 1890s, the Casino de Monte Carlo had several such tables, each starting the day's play with its own working float of a 100,000 francs. Occasionally, a gambler would win more than the croupier had left in his float, giving rise to the expression to break the bank. An early manager of the casino, François Blanc, had even devised a little ceremony to mark each occasion it happened, whereby a black cloth was laid over the gaming table and play halted while more funds were brought up from the casino's safe. The song, The Man Who Broke the Bank at Monte Carlo, was written in 1891 or 92 by Fred Gilbert. Gilbert claimed that the lyrics were inspired by a real person, and there are several qualifiers for that title. I stay indoors till after lunch and then my daily walk to the great Joseph Jagger was a textile worker from Bradford in Yorkshire who noticed that the yarn-producing spinning wheels, which were the mainstay of his business, were often slightly eccentric, out of balance. At that time his own business was somewhat out of balance and with a family to support, Jagger wondered if the spinning roulette wheels of the far-off Casino de Monte Carlo, about which he had read so much, might suffer from the same mechanical liability. Over a period of a month observing the gaming tables in the elegant halls of Monte Carlo, he clocked the numbers that were coming up more frequently than the others, presumably on account of the eccentricities of the wheel, and placed his bets on those numbers. By this means, he is supposed to have won more than two million francs in just a few days, a sum which the Times worked out to be equivalent today to more than seven and a half million pounds, thus breaking the Monte Carlo bank. So, was Joseph Jagger the man? Kenneth Clark. The art historian who used to have a programme on television must have benefited from funds which his father, Kenneth Mackenzie Clark, would have brought home from abroad. Funds he had acquired playing the tables at Monte Carlo. With no method claimed, he put his bank-breaking streak down to luck. Luck, which bought him a golf course in Sospel in France, where he also built an hotel. Perhaps it was he who inspired Gilbert. I patronised the tables at the Monte Carlo Hill till they hadn't got a sou for a Christian or a Jew. I then flew off to Paris for the charms of Mademoiselle, who's the darling of my heart, what can I do? When with twenty tongues she swears that she's through. As I walked along the park below the Nintendo... Arthur de Courcy Bower, a convicted fraudster, used some of his ill-gotten gains to finance his encounter with the roulette wheels of Monaco. He's reported to have broken the bank five times in 1911. The song we're interested in, however, had been written some 20 years before, so Bauer is unlikely to be the man sauntering down the Bois de Boulogne referred to in the lyrics. No, the man who Gilbert actually cited as the background figure to his famous comic song was one Charles Deville Wells. Another Englishman, and also a convicted con man like Bauer, Wells had been an inventive engineer in the shipyards of Marseille, but in about 1879 moved to Paris and turned to fraud, for which he was convicted by the French court. He fled back to England, where he had been born 44 years previously, and continued there what he had been forced to abandon in France, 
that is, persuading investors to back various spurious inventions of his. The backers, of course, never saw any return on their investment. It was in the summer of 1891 that Wells returned to France, where, flush with his fraudulent cash, he visited the gaming house of Monte Carlo, where he broke the bank several times. Wells' background as a fraudster, however, led to speculation that he had found a way to cheat the casino, though nobody seems to know definitively by what means. Author and radio producer Robin Quinn suggests in his book, The Man Who Broke the Bank at Monte Carlo, that rather than losing millions if one of their clients should have a particularly successful run at a gaming table, in the longer run a casino stands to gain through publicity and the implicit suggestion that if one person can do it, why should another not? More gamblers equal more money coming in. Now, you'll be aware of the street corner card shop running a find-the-lady betting scam, where one of the punters is finding it easy to guess where the Queen is, outwitting and winning money from the card shop dealer. Other punters are thus emboldened to bet in the game, whereupon they are mercilessly fleeced by the dealer. The apparently lucky punter is, of course, a stooge in cahoots with the card shop. Well, in 1890, the Monte Carlo Casino was threatened with closure following the accession of Prince Albert of Monaco, who was a conscientious objector to gambling. And Quinn suggests that, as an established con man, Wells may have been brought in as a similar kind of stooge to help boost the casino's profits in the last few months before it was shut down. Wells had already worked for a relative of the casino's then-manager, Camille Blanc, so the theory has some merit, although it has to be said that Monte Carlo did not close and is indeed still operating today. However he achieved it, Wells walked away from the table with more money than any of the other bank breakers. The publicity this generated and the popularity of Gilbert's musical song guaranteed that the name of Monte Carlo will never be forgotten, and I believe business is still booming. So Charles Deville Wells was the true inspiration for our song. But if he was technically in the employ of the Casino de Monte Carlo at the time, can Wells really be said to have broken the bank? Still, you don't want the truth to get in the way of a good song, do you? Itself known for musical concerts, the Church of St Martin in the Fields in London's West End really did one stand in the fields, just as nearby Haymarket was a market selling hay. But the church has moved with the times. In 1924, it hosted the first ever religious service to be broadcast live. You might have expected Westminster Abbey or St Paul's to get the nod, but neither wanted it. Many in the religious establishment thought it would be wrong to transmit divine worship over the airwaves, as people might listen in pubs. Dick Shepherd, St Martin's vicar at the time, was delighted to receive a letter saying that people in one South London pub had tuned in. Not only had they sung hymns for the first time since childhood, they discussed his sermon over their beer. 
Shepard also got the better of George Bernard Shaw. He asked the playwright if he would contribute an article for the St Martin's Review. Shaw responded that he wouldn't write for a silly parish magazine. When Shepard said he'd published the response without comment, Shaw supplied a proper article within days. The saint who gave the church its name was the third bishop of Tours. One day, approaching the gates of Amiens on a cold winter's day, Martin saw a beggar wearing very few clothes. Cutting his cloak in two, he gave half to the man. Martin is now the patron saint of beggars and the church is known for its work with the homeless. Dick Shepherd labelled it the Church of the Ever-Open Door. In the 1920s, when the church let the homeless sleep in its crypt every night, a warden explained why they never judged anyone a scrounger until they'd fed them. You can't expect to hear the truth on an empty stomach. The church also has long-standing links with the peace movement. They can't have been very happy when in 1914 a bomb was planted in one of the pews, supposedly by the suffragettes. It destroyed a window dedicated to W.H. Smith. Yes, that W.H. Smith. Since 2008, the church's eastern window has been warped, a deliberate installation by the artist Shiraze Hushari, who says her work symbolises the fact that everything is in a state of erosion. My favourite reminder of that comes down in the crypt, which is now a cafe, where you can read the gravestones at your feet. One runs, Remember, man, as thou goest by, as thou art now, so once was I. As I am now, so must thou be. Prepare thyself to follow me. In 1871, St Martin's was the venue for the wedding of the tallest married couple ever. She was seven feet eleven, he was seven feet seven. The vicar was a diminutive six foot three. More recently, the church has become famous for its memorial services. In 2001, it was Douglas Adams' turn. His friend Richard Dawkins reminding everyone how proud Adams had been that I was born in Cambridge in 1952 and my initials are DNA. The next year came Spike Milligan's. The comedian had once told Harry Seacombe, I do hope you die before me because I don't want you singing at my funeral. Seacombe did die first, but his son brought the St Martin's house down by playing a recording of his father singing Guide Me, O Thou Great Redeemer. <laughs> Just up the road from St Martin's is the new Bridge Theatre, which opened in 2017 and which premiered Alan Bennett's Hallelujah only last year. Actor Simon Williams, who starred in the play, writes in the Telegraph magazine how his life could have been different. Phil. As a child, I was never alone. I had an invisible companion. Didn't everyone? Mine was somewhere between a teddy bear and a sidekick, the perfect ally, cleverer and braver than me. He'd be there when my brother didn't need me. 
His name was Tony, a poor weather friend for when I was homesick or in a sulk, a friendly shadow. I never saw him as a twin, although I was intrigued by Tweedledum and Tweedledee, Romulus and Remus, etc. I loved a parent trap. Two Haley Mills were better than one. In our teens, Tony and I went our separate ways. There was puberty stuff going on that might have shocked him. He was just a fantasy. Or was he? One day, when I was cramming for A-levels in Brighton, I passed a clairvoyance booth on the promenade. It was raining, and I had time on my hands. Madame Elsa was perfect casting, the black hair, the gaudy shawl, the blue eyeliner. As I placed my hands in hers, I was already inventing jokes about her for my friends later. She closed her eyes, then smiled and said, So, you're one of twins. I told her I was a Gemini and she must be confused. She shook her head and moved on. She saw me working with animals and making people laugh. She got that right. I once did a sitcom with Nigel Havers. That evening I mentioned a visit to my mother. Well, she was right, she said. You should have been one of a pair. I had a miscarriage at four months, but later we found you were still there, my pet. I wasn't really surprised. I'd half known all along. My first feeling was of guilt that poor Tony had drawn the short straw and I'd been happy as Larry, oblivious of his sacrifice. I was Tweedledum without my D. What fun we could have had cross-dating and taking each other's penalty points. For his sake, I try to doubly enjoy the good times. It's the least thing I can do. Tony would have been my bellwether and saved me from all the gaffes of style, fashion and facial hair. Joan Rivers wished she'd had a twin so that she could see what she looked like without plastic surgery. For members of the lone twin network who live with the ghosts of other halves, the loss is like an amputation. Their twin might have gone, but the sensation lingers on. They all share a deep and private loneliness, the burden of having been one of two lovely berries on a single stem. According to the Chinese proverb, it's not economical to go to bed early to save the candles if the result is twins. Simon Williams' acting career has included parts in many classic plays, including the Sherlock Holmes mysteries, The Noble Bachelor and The Hound of the Baskervilles. In our Sherlock Holmes story, Holmes and Watson are brought to life by Mark Devlin as he reads the second part of Angela Lanyon's The Wembury Terror. You said you saved her life. Will you tell us what happened? Well, it's true, said Sir Charles. For a moment his eyes clouded as if he looked into the past. And then, taking a breath, he related his story. Less than two years ago, early one morning, on the very beach that you see from these windows, the Matilda Briggs, a fine sailing vessel on her way to Plymouth, founded on the rocks. It had been a foul night, with a gale shrieking like a lost soul. I assume you've heard of Cornish wreckers. Well, we're not so savage in these parts. But a shipwreck is a fine source of goods, and employment, if you understand my meaning. 
I turned the staff out, and while we searched the shore for anyone remaining alive, as the fisherfolk were dragging what they could save of the stuff floating ashore. I dare say they hoped for gold and valuables, but there was little of that sort. Or you weren't informed of the fact? <laughs> Not at all, Sir Charles looked affronted. There were several bodies flung up on the sand, and I thought at first that they were all dead, but no, in one there was a wisp of breath. He gestured to his wife. We carried her up to the house, and when she was sufficiently recovered, Miss Van Dryman, as she then was, explained that far from being a cargo ship, the Matilda Briggs was one of two ships which had set out from Amsterdam on a voyage of exploration to chart the smaller islands of the Malay archipelago. As the daughter of one of the surveyors, she was returning with the results of the expedition, and the porcelain served merely as ballast. Between ourselves, I think they hoped to recoup their expenses by selling it when they returned to Holland. By now it was late, and we retired to bed, leaving Holmes planning his investigations in the following morning. However, when it came, it brought news of another attack. Horace Molesworth, one of the villagers, was lying gravely wounded in his cottage. He had survived principally owing to the presence of his dog, but the animal, a lurcher, had died defending his master. When we arrived, the doctor was on the point of leaving. A fiendish attack, inhuman, he muttered as he passed us in the doorway. Inside we found Molesworth lying on a couch, his face and throat covered in dressings. In answer to Holmes's questions, he had croaked that he had been walking down by the beach when he had been set upon by a large animal. It had been too dark to see what it was, but it had come from the direction of Wembury Grange. "'You were out poaching, were you not?' demanded Holmes sternly, glancing at his muddied boots which lay by the door. "'And you were nowhere near the beach.' "'Oh, sir, be good to a poor man,' bleated Molesworth. "'I meant no harm, just a rabbit for the pot.' "'Then tell the truth, man, and be quick about it.' Eventually, with many digressions, the man admitted that he had been rabbiting through the woods below the grange, and when nearing the ruins he had heard rustling in the bushes. Bending down to set his snare, something had sprung out of the undergrowth and had gone for his throat. I flung up my hands to pull it off, and my dog leapt on its back, and it let go of me with a squeal that would have raised the dead and set about the dog. And did you get a good look at it? Like something from hell it was, I tell you. Eyes like green fire. And when it had done for the dog, it turned back to me. Went for my face, it did. I reckon the dog had injured it. When I gave it a blow with my cudgel, it ran off. And the dog? Dead. Following his directions, we returned to the place where we had walked from the previous day. Everything bore out the man's story. But of the dog there was no sign, except tatters of fur and the marks of clawed feet which led towards the ruins. "'You have your revolver, Watson?' Holmes asked. 
we had sent messengers to Sir Charles to meet us with a gamekeeper, and together we approached the buildings. The foul smell of rotting flesh assailed our nostrils, and the lanterns that we had brought threw light onto a carpet of bones. As we advanced within, but before I could draw my revolver, something hurled itself out of the darkness and towards Holmes. It was as well that he was wearing a heavy scarf wrapped around his neck, or the creature would have torn his throat out, but in the gloom it was impossible to distinguish my target amongst the tangle of limbs and fur rolling on the ground. Time and again I took aim, but at last a high-pitched shriek told me that my bullet had found its mark. Well done, Rotson, my friend panted, dabbing at his bloodied face with a handkerchief. We stared. Revealed in the orange light of the lantern was indeed a creature from hell, even now twitching and snapping in its death throes. Four to five feet long, with thick blackish fur, and with a strong muscular tail. It was clearly a rat of some sort, but far larger than I had ever encountered. Behold, the giant rat of Sumatra, gentlemen, escaping from the same shipwreck as your wife, Sir Charles, it sought refuge here. Once able to hunt, but now old and getting feeble, it found human beings easy prey. Holmes looked at it with pity. I suspected something of this sort when I saw the porcelain and heard your story. Rumours of such a creature had been published in several obscure journals, and the button was the final clue. The teeth marks were clearly those of some large rodent, and only rats are vicious enough to do such damage. Back at the house, Lady Betterton confirmed Holmes's deductions. The captain of the Matilda Briggs, returning from the East Indies with his surveying results, had included specimens of plants and animals among the cargo. Secretive about his discoveries, as he had hoped to cause a sensation in the scientific world, he had not given details of the loss. "'You must forgive me, gentlemen, for having stayed silent for so long.' At first I was too ill and afterwards believed the creature to have perished in the shipwreck. It was only later, she confessed, that I began to suspect what must have happened. She turned away. I shall always blame myself for those two deaths. I was foolhardy, Watson, said Holmes, as we travelled back to London. Criminally careless to venture into that fetid den when I knew what was awaiting me. And but for your skill with your revolver, he said no more, and I respected his silence. On our return to Baker Street, Holmes was laid up with a fever induced by the bites the creature had inflicted. His iron constitution overcame it eventually, but I wasn't surprised that this was one of the cases that he preferred not to recall.
Well, that brings us to the end of the August issue of the Worcester Talking magazine. Copying was done by Sylvia and David Day, with administration by Carol Hartle. The producer was John Plush. We'll be back in November, so until then, it's cheerio from Jenny. Goodbye. Sue. Bye-bye. Phil. Goodbye. And from me, Brian, goodbye. <laughs>